Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 472nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is focusing on sustainable growing practices on a 20-acre site down under. We're talking with Angela Neeland about permaculture homesteading in Australia. Angela is an Australian 34-year-old mother, part-time university research officer who holds a PhD in Australian Aboriginal archaeology. She and her husband, Daniel, own Loganberry Forest, a permaculture homestead in rural Victoria, Australia, where she recently started a small heirloom seed business for her homegrown seeds online. Welcome to the show today, Angela. Are you ready to rock seeds? Sure am. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? So both Daniel, my husband and I, we come from suburban upbringings in, well, he was from Melbourne, which is also in Victoria. And I'm originally from Queensland, which is a more tropical part of Australia. And yeah, just grew up not having any kind of farming background or anything like that. And we actually came to meet while I was doing my PhD fieldwork in Central Australia in the desert. Uh-huh. He, was, he was working as an engineer at the mine at the time. And because I met him and partly because it was a really big project, I ended up living there for six years. He was there for like nine years in the desert, which was also a really different kind of environment to what we'd grown up with. It was a small town. We didn't have a lot of land or anything like that. In fact, we were renting a lot of the time that we were there. But I think just living in that desert environment, I really missed green plants. It's very, very arid. It's just like sand dunes and rocky desert plains and things like that. And I'd always had an interest in growing food and that, even as a child. used to love visiting my grandparents that lived in the country, although it wasn't actually a farm. But I remember even as a child, I used to kind of beg my parents to move to the country, which they, of course, didn't want to do. And also another, I think, influential thing in my upbringing, which led me to be interested in this kind of lifestyle, was the the British comedy TV series, The Good Life, which... It's kind of a joke, but I still always thought that sounded pretty cool. It's about this couple that turned their suburban London, I think it is, place into 
like a little home homestead essentially, growing all of their food. Really? On this in their like front yard. It's a really really great series from the seventies, so it wasn't even it isn't even from my time period. But I absolutely loved it, and I have it still on DVD because I think it's fantastic. And so yeah, just the kind of the the trials and tribulations that they go through that and basically opting out from the standard kind of nine to five type jobs to grow their own food and that kind of thing. Oh, fun. Um, yeah, so I always really loved that idea, even though obviously that's a comedy. And when I was living in the desert and, you know, feeling like I needed more green stuff around me, I became actually like practically interested in gardening. So I started with a lot of container gardening. I did a bit of using like one metre square raised garden beds because we were always renting, including at one point I was living in a caravan. Um, I had to be able to move everything and I moved very, very frequently. I think I moved almost every year that I lived there. So it was all that kind of small scale stuff. And it was also really challenging with the climate. I was dealing with extremely hot temperatures. It, summer it would get up to 50 degrees Celsius, which I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's really, really hot. And winter, it actually can get relatively cold and very, very windy. So it was a very challenging environment. And I, being a researcher, like to research everything in my life. So I was researching a lot about different gardening practices. I was always very interested in like organic gardening methods. I didn't want to use a lot of chemicals and things like that. So I was reading about, you know, square foot gardening and I was reading about French intensive gardening methods and vertical gardening. And I came across permaculture, I guess, in my readings about that and then tried to implement some of those things into what I was doing. While you were living in the desert? Yes, while I was living in the desert. So I would do things like use the grey water from our washing machine and put them on our fruit trees and just also how like everything is sort of integrated together. But it, it's obviously a very different thing on a, that tiny, tiny scale because they really very, very small backyards compared to what we're doing on 20 acres now. Right. So if you don't know, permaculture is sort of a philosophy that doesn't just apply to gardening. It's kind of a lifestyle and philosophy and perspective, which looks to nature as inspiration and it's about really designing your lifestyle and your landscape so that all of the components are really integrated and work well together in a way that's really sustainable. And there's like three ethics that are the core part of permaculture, which is earth care, people care and fair share. So caring for the environment, you know, sharing surplus and stuff like that. And there's a big, strong community focus as well. Certainly, I guess when I was starting out, it was very much mostly focused on the sustainable gardening, I guess, right. aspect, but that's kind of grown over time and I've deepened my understanding of permaculture. So I did that actually through doing a permaculture design certificate. So when I started, Daniel wasn't particularly interested in what I was doing. He thought my gardens looked quite messy because they weren't about what looked good. It was very much about functionally trying to grow what I could. Right. But then one day I came home and he'd been sick from work and he was watching YouTube videos on permaculture, Jeff Lawton ones, which he has a lot of free content, which is a really good place to start if you want to learn about permaculture. Yeah. And yeah, I think he must have just come across something on Reddit or whatever that sent him there. And him being an engineer was really interested in the design part of it. So the big picture and how the, the components integrate together. And Jeff Lawton does a lot of really large-scale stuff. We've actually visited his property, which is something we like to do when we go on holidays or whatever, is look for permaculture mm -hmm. properties that we can go tour. So, yeah, he suddenly became interested, and then that became something we did together was watch a lot of videos on permaculture. And then when Jeff Lawton announced that he was doing his online permaculture design certificate, we enrolled together and did that. 
which was just a nice sort of activity to do because also we were living in this really remote place where there wasn't a lot else you could do um, in terms of activities or whatever. So that's what we did. It was a combination of watching permaculture videos and then looking online at properties that we might buy when we were going to leave because living in that desert, you know, where there's only basically one employer and all of that, it's not exactly a long-term solution. Plus it's hot. Oh, yeah. And you can't really buy, you can't buy land there. You could buy like small suburban type properties, but yeah, and it's very risky property market there because it's all mm. hinging on this one employer. And I didn't want to, I never intended to be sort of stuck there. <laughs> so, so yeah, we decided to buy the property that we did now. When you were looking for the property, what, what things were you looking for from a permaculture eye? So when we first started thinking about what we wanted to buy, I think we were initially just thinking like big suburban, like backyard kind of thing where we could grow some of our food. But we got a little bit excited about the possibilities as we were doing our permaculture design certificate and seeing some of the things that Jeff Lawton was doing. And it became obvious that we wanted like quite a lot of land. He actually has a really good video that's probably out there somewhere about kind of aspects to look in the land. But I think we really have really focused on more logistical things in terms of the aspects that make actually being able to live our lifestyle a little bit less risky and in terms of being able to afford to live where we are and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. um, as well as obviously aspects in the land. So we chose to live in Victoria. We kind of could have almost lived anywhere in Australia. We considered a lot of different states in Australia because we were used to living far away from our family already and things like that. But at the time, Daniel was studying to be an actuary and those jobs for those kind of in that field is pretty much focused either in Melbourne or in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So that kind of narrowed it down to what states. Sydney is incredibly expensive. I mean, so is Melbourne, but Victoria was significantly cheaper and also it had the benefit of all of his family is originally from Victoria, so they're all there. So we basically wanted something that was within one hour commute by train to Melbourne in case we ever needed to do work. And in fact, I did work for six months in Melbourne. I didn't love the commute, partly because it wasn't in the CBD, but I think if, if we ever had to have a job in the CBD, it would be manageable. So that was an option. We also wanted to be nearby another major regional centre. So we're 20 minutes from Ballarat, which is like a really large, it's considered a city. And in fact, that's where we both work, where there's all of the resources that we need, like schools and supermarkets and, you know, all of that. A movie theatre. Yeah, everything. And in fact, we almost never go to Melbourne. We just pretty much live our life going to Ballarat. But it is nice that we're that little bit closer to Melbourne than, say, if we lived in Ballarat because... If we ever do need to, you know, work there or whatever, that's way more manageable. So that was the major factor. And also internet. (laughs) Surprisingly, there are so many places within one hour of Melbourne that do not have phone, reception, internet, nothing. You could only get satellite, which would be way too expensive to do at the, the level that we were used to doing. And we wanted the option to be able to do online work and that kind of thing. So that was a major factor. And then on top of that, like price, so the closer you get to Melbourne, it just became more and more expensive. The western side was significantly cheaper out towards Ballarat, which is good. So that's kind of where we ended up. And also it's a lot wetter here than some other parts. So we'd looked at land near Geelong, which is another really big regional centre, but it's really, really dry there. So it just, when we went on a little driving tour around here one weekend, when we took a trip to visit his family, it was just such a beautiful place. We just knew right away that sort of the area that we are in now was perfect for us. What does your Loganberry farm look like? If I were to drive up the driveway, 
what am I going to see? So what we ended up purchasing, we didn't want to build. We'd watched so many episodes of Grand Designs, which I don't know if you get that in America, but in, it's an English show that's where people do all these crazy, amazing architectural buildings. And that show seems to make people either want to build or not want to build. And <laughs> it made us not want to ever build because people always end up blowing out their budgets and, and like having all this drama. And we didn't want that. So we just thought we'd rather just get like an older place that we could, you know, renovate if we needed. And we really didn't need to have, we decided that we didn't need to have a massive house. So that was really one way that we managed to keep our costs, you know, significantly lower was by going for a small three bedroom little house that wasn't like crazy big or, you know, it's not, it doesn't have much character or anything like that, but it's very functional, which is what we need. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we went for. So, and it's a, it was originally a weekender for an Italian couple, like an older couple that ended up, you know, getting too old to manage it. And they had it set up as a sheep farm. So there's mm. most of the land is just paddocks, which are like in just sort of blocks with fences. And we intentionally also, another factor is bushfires are like crazy bad here. It's probably the worst place in the world for bushfires. And there are a lot of areas around here that have a lot of forest, which is a massive risk. So you end up also with overlays on your property where you then have restrictions about how you can build things, not to mention just a higher risk of losing everything to a bushfire. Right. So we we didn't want to have a forested property, at least not having a forest close to the house. And this is kind of what we found. So it's mo mainly just paddocks. That being said, I do want to long-term revegetate a lot of it, but we're going to do that in a permaculture way, which is not necessarily focusing just on using only native plants. We'll just put what works best, which is also focusing on things that are less prone to bushfires. So that would include a lot of deciduous like plants from, say, Europe and America, like oaks and, and things like that. And also we will do native plants, particularly focusing on acacias, which are nitrogen-fixing plants. Right. But they're less prone to bushfires than, say, a eucalyptus. So we won't probably plant a lot of eucalyptus. They'll probably self-seed from the couple of trees that are already on the property, but we won't be putting a lot in because that would massively increase our bushfire risk. And we'll also be thinking about what trees we can use to, say, coppice to have firewood or Daniel's got really into woodworking, so maybe things that he could use to do projects like in the long-distant future when they've grown bigger. So... Yeah, at the moment, we have about two acres around of the house, which we've really intensively focused our efforts on. We have the greenhouse that we've done. We've got, we were lucky that the property already included an orchard. And oh, so what nice. we've been actually, yeah, so what we've been doing is trying to transform that into more of a food forest because at the moment, come springtime, the grass just grows crazy and Daniel spends a lot of time using the lawnmower, which is, you know, not great for the environment with all the petrol that it uses and it just takes up a lot of time. So we, we think a food forest is more sustainable. So what we've been doing is using our chickens with a chicken tractor yep. and an electric fence and focusing them on these little patches of the orchard and they scratch up all of the grass and then we reseed it with like a legume-based ground cover, including things like clover and, and we also plant other plants like tree lucerne, which is another nitrogen fixing plant and sometimes acacia and, and sometimes other food plants as well. I just do a mixture. I'm almost treating each patch as like a little experiment where I change things. And also because the patches get exposed at different times of the year. So then I have to consider what is best to plant at that time of year. So the idea is then we don't ever mow those patches and that they should be like just able to look after themselves. We'll probably do some bit of chop and drop. And then that way, 
the the legumes will release some of the nitrogen and feed the fruit trees. Mm-hmm. We'll have to have pathways through it though because one of the things that is going to become a risk, I guess, more so is snakes. We get a lot of snakes here which are some of the deadliest in the world and by having a lot of like bushiness, that definitely is going to increase the risk of that. So, yeah, we'll just have to see how we go but I think that's probably one reason a lot of people just tend to have orchards rather than food forests but we'll see. What kind of fruit trees do you have in your orchard? Apples and pears and cherries and chestnuts and figs and there's nectarines and then I've planted some more as well I've sort of extended it so I've planted some more plums and an apricot and we have one almond tree but because you need more than one for pollination Mm -hmm. I'm going to plant I'm planning to plant more this winter because right now is the time to be planting our bare-rooted trees right yes I think that's mainly it pretty much most things but um the birds tend to get everything unless we net so that's a big job and that's something we oh, don't yes. usually manage to net everything. <laughs> so we'll just pick a few apple trees and net them. And, and also like just buying all of the, the net is qu- quite expensive. So yeah, exactly. every year we'll get a few more and then do it. But You know what I use yeah. instead of bird netting? Yeah. I use tool. You know, the stuff they make tutus and wedding dresses out of? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And, uh, Wouldn't that rip easier? It might. The thing is, is you only need it during about a two-week period. And the the, yeah. the problem with bird netting around trees is it kills birds and it has a tendency to tangle up with the tree. Yeah, it um, definitely tangles the tree. Yeah, it yeah. does. So that's that's my solution. So maybe, you know, that might be a little less expensive. Give that a shot. Yeah, I'll look it up. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Absolutely. So you mentioned a permaculture design certificate. Would you tell our listeners yeah. what that is? So originally the permaculture design certificate is was meant to be based around the permaculture designers manual which is a book by Bill Mollison. So there was two people that actually founded permaculture many years ago and Australia is actually a bit of a hot spot for it which is kind of exciting and particularly where we're living there's actually like a lot of permaculture stuff happening around us. Yeah. So David Holgram and, and Bill Mollison were the founders. Bill Mollison's no longer alive. He was David Holgram's teacher originally. So David Holgram was a lot younger, which is why he's still around. And in fact, he's down the road from us, which is really cool. Oh, really? He's, he's, about, he's about 30 minutes away and I've actually done a tour of his property as well. Nice. And just there's a lot going on around him and in oh, the Ballarat sure. area. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the original permaculture designer certificate, that is meant to be, at least that's the way Bill Mollison originally came up with it. Yeah, doing the certificate basically takes you through that book and you usually have to do a design assignment, which we actually did our property because at that point we'd actually bought it. There's a lot of different ways you can do a permaculture design certificate. A lot of people like to do them in person and I think there's a lot of benefits to doing that. For example, the local permaculture guild where we are in Ballarat, they offer one which is run over several weekends and what would be really great about that for someone local is that you would then get really integrated into the local community. You would get to see a lot more local properties and understand your local climate a lot better. So that's a lot of benefit, you know, a lot of benefits to doing it that way. Some people like to turn it into a holiday and go to Bali or something and and do one there, like an intensive one. But neither of those things suited us at the time because we were living in the middle of nowhere where there was no permaculture certificates offered in person. Uh I also knew that I was doing permaculture in the desert, which Jeff Lawton is a bit of an expert in because he does a lot of work in Jordan. Yes. And then we were going to be moving to temperate Australia. So I needed to have 
a more general overview of all the different climates and that kind of thing rather than focusing on one specific area. Mm-hmm. We also just really liked his style of teaching from watching his videos. So that's and then yeah, at the time I was also at the end of my time living in the desert, I actually was working for the local council as kind of a, a project environmentally environmental sustainability kind of officer uh-huh. role, which part of that was working with the local community garden. So that was another opportunity where I got to try and you know, implement some of the permaculture, the design experience in another type of garden, which had a, a big focus also on native plants and stuff like that. So, yeah, we did it through that method. I think it's several weeks. It was all videoed. There was like a way that you could interact with other students doing the course. And I think the only downside to doing it that way over the in-person thing is not necessarily having those in-person community connections and also not necessarily getting to see properties in person. But I feel like I've made up for that now. Now that I'm established, I've made connections with the local community groups here and I do a lot of tours myself just because I'm interested. So I feel like I've created the same experience in the long term. And also I have now the benefit of this big DVD collection of all the lectures and stuff that Jeff Lawton gave, which I can go back to and watch at any time, which you wouldn't get the chance to do if you did an in-person course. Right. So, yeah, yeah, there's pros and cons and it just just fit my lifestyle better because I was, you know, already studying a PhD and doing other things and working and (laughs) I couldn't have gone somewhere to do a course. Right. So, Loganberry Forest, why did you decide to name your farm. Okay, so it's a bit of an aspirational name because as I said, like a lot of it is paddocks, so it's obviously not a forest, but we would like it to be a forest one day with lots of food forest and revegetated forest and all of that. We called it Loganberry Forest, partly because Loganberries was one of the first things that we planted here. And also Daniel had a bit of a history with Loganberries. His one of his grandparents had used to grow a lot of them and used to make every year a lot of Loganberry things like jams and ice creams and things like that. So he had nice memories and we just thought it sounded nice. So we're like, yep, that's what we'll do. And also we'd done a berry growing workshop with the local permaculture guild recently. So we did know we wanted to grow a lot of berries because Uh we are lucky to live in a place that they grow really, really well, which is like there's only small pockets in Australia where that's the case. So we feel quite fortunate because we love berries. And that's one thing we do every year is we, the plan is to add like a big berry row where we're going to grow a different type of berry in each row. So at the moment we've got a raspberry row and a blueberry row. The loganberries that we planted are just on a fence, but I think we'll probably make a whole row of loganberries as well. Nice. So that's why it's called that. So it's not, doesn't have a huge amount of meaning, I guess, but yeah. It gets the job done. So are you doing anything at this point to make a living from what you're doing on the farm? I know we're going to talk about your seed company here in a little while, but are you doing anything else or are you still working other jobs and the farm is the kind of a hobby at this moment? So I have my seed business. That's definitely, I guess, a side gig. We definitely couldn't live off that. And I'm not really sure if it would even be possible at the scale that we're doing it for someone ever to live off seeds anyway. But yeah, it definitely, I feel like it's making like a, a contribution in uh-huh. terms of Absolutely being able to. it is, yep. Yeah, and in terms of like I have a big focus on trying to share knowledge on seed saving and things like that, but also making available locally grown seeds and seeds that are grown using sustainable permaculture principles, which the vast majority of seeds that someone could buy in Australia are not. Most of them are actually from overseas, Yep. which when I found that out, I was quite 
horrified because it makes Australia's food supply really, un, you know, like risky. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the majority of food at the supermarket is not grown using local seeds and there is no requirement for them. And I've never, ever seen labelling on seeds saying where something's grown. Like they don't have to and nobody does. So there are even, you know, other small scale seed sellers that would just be buying seeds and dividing them into smaller packets. And they may not even know, but quite likely those seeds are also grown overseas, which then also means they're less adapted to the local environment. Mm So I hope to grow our seed business a little bit more, but I I imagine it's only ever going to be part of, you know, our overall, you know, working things. Yeah. I don't think we will ever be like, I don't imagine we'll ever do market gardening or anything like that because one of the things about our property is it's in a water, a special protected water zone. And so it has a rule that you can't use dam water to grow plants that you would then sell. You can use it to grow your own food, but you can't use it, yeah, to grow plants that you would sell. Yeah, because it's like part of the the catchment for the drinking water, essentially. So there are people across the road that used to have a market garden and they were using bore water, but... From, what kind of? Yeah. What kind of water? Uh, like groundwater. Oh, They had right. a bore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's actually not terribly sustainable to do that. So I don't want to tap into that. It doesn't sort of fit with my personal ethics. And yeah, I've my job actually works with people that do stuff with groundwater. And I was asking, you know, people that were experts in it, like the sustainability of that. And they thought that it was being overused. So that's not something that we would ever do. So, and I actually like having a regular job as well. It's just part-time and it's a really nice work-life balance. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about your seed company and you have an offer for our listeners in Australia. Yeah. So if you go to loganberryforest.com.au, which is my website, it's got both the seed store on there as well as like lots of blog posts. And I also have a YouTube channel and, and stuff like that. And if you are in Australia, unfortunately not Tasmania or Western Australia, because if you are, you have strict quarantine rules that prevent me from being able to send seeds there. But if you're in the rest of Australia, then if you use the code Urban Farm Podcast as one word, then you can get 10% off any of my seeds. Beautiful. And what kind of seeds are you growing to sell? So they're mostly edibles. Yeah, it's all open pollinated, heirloom, you know, rare heritage varieties, basically. It's it's basically what we grow here to feed ourselves. I save the seeds from that and I've been putting a, a bit more effort into saving them in larger quantities than we would yep. just need for ourselves. Nice. Um, yeah, so, and it's all guaranteed. I've, I have the ethic that I've decided to stick with that anything we sell is going to be stuff that's grown on our property, which, you know, we do not use monoculture, so everything's planted you know, interplanted and very diverse and, yeah, so basically it's grown without chemicals, it's using permaculture principles and that's what we sell. Nice. So I think there's over 50 different varieties of seeds there. What's your favourite? My favourite at the moment is what I'm actually been working on just processing and cleaning up to save to put on the website right now, which is the glass gem corn just because it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it seems really, really actually very a very multi-purpose plant actually which surprised me because if you read online about it it would suggest that it's just a maze that you can use for popcorn and making tortillas and that kind of thing but actually I discovered that it is quite sweet still that you can eat actually eat it if you get it before it goes dry and it still tastes pretty sweet so I think that it's the ultimate multi-purpose corn plus it looks incredible and kids love it and it's like a little surprise when you're unwrapping it to see what you're going to get so oh no kidding yeah no kidding so it's my favorite what's your website again loganberryforest.com.au 
Perfect. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. So we have been battling cooch grass mostly as long as we've been here, which is one of those kind of perennial running grasses that goes really, really deep with its roots. And it just kept getting into the garden beds, which was a problem. When we first arrived here to live, I was in that last year of writing my PhD. So I didn't have a lot of time and I just kind of quickly put in a garden where there'd previously been a bit of a veggie garden. And I did do, you know, newspaper mulching where you put down a layer of newspaper or cardboard and then, you know, compost on top of that and plant. But I obviously didn't do thickly enough and very quickly the the grass took over again and I didn't have time to be out there weeding constantly and while I still produced a lot of food I'm sure it wasn't as much as I would have otherwise and not to mention then I had to you know next season spend a huge amount of time you know undoing all of that and getting the grass out again right. and in fact I made the mistake again the next year like I think I did a bit thicker cardboard but it obviously wasn't enough and then the grass took over again so finally we worked out that what we needed to do was to dig a trench around the whole garden and actually put down some wooden sleepers so that the, the roots couldn't run in sideways mm -hmm. and then like really, really seriously mulch very, very thickly the, the cardboard and the newspaper. We also did like, we converted it into like little mini raised garden beds because it just seemed to work a little bit better with the water distribution and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, I definitely feel like I learned out of that experience that it's often better to spend a bit more time doing things more properly and carefully yeah. <laughs> and that overall that'll save more time rather than just, I think, particularly as a parent with kids that, you know, might have need me or whatever, it's very tempting often just to do things quickly and not properly. And that usually ends up turning out to be an issue in the future. So, yeah, that's definitely something I've learned is the grass is definitely difficult. But the sheep love it. So Yeah, do it right the first time. <laughs> yeah. So we actually have something like that. Uh, we call it Bermuda grass here. And it's, it's runners and deep roots. And you can't pull it out. You have to dig it out. And yeah. the way I solved that problem was I actually put in what I call a weed wall. I put down a 16-inch deep concrete footer yeah. around my garden, and then I dig out the Bermuda grass in the middle and then plant. And that that was my solution over the past 30 years. Yeah. Well, yeah, the sleepers would be doing something very similar. So, yeah. What do you consider your biggest success? So I think the biggest success so far has been our greenhouse. So originally it was these two sheds that were full of asbestos roofing and stuff in the backyard. And when we saw it, we realized there was asbestos. We had to get a professional in to properly remove it. And then we needed to replace the roof with something. And then we realized that it was actually like the perfect location for a big, big greenhouse. So nice. we combined them together and replaced all of the corrugated iron, except for on the south side. So being in the southern hemisphere, the sun's at the north. So that was just a money-saving money thing because changing the corrugated iron to the laser light material, which is what we used for the rest of it, like mm -hmm. it would have just added up a whole lot more. So we decided to do it like properly this time. So rather than using cheap, flimsy, you know, plastic in terms of like a lot of people do polydome, yep. like polytunnel things where yep. they use like stuff that's like a plastic bag over the top, but often the, the, the wind or whatever will rip it and it doesn't last long term. We didn't want to have to redo it constantly, so we chose to use the polycarbonate roofing material instead, and it's been seriously good. We were really lucky that it was already orientated in the perfect kind of way where the, there's a really long axis facing north, and 
being in a climate, so we, we're in a temperate climate here. It actually does snow here probably a few times a year, although it doesn't necessarily stay on the ground. We get a huge amount of frost because we're in a bit of a frost pocket where we're at the base of a old sort of volcano cone. And then there's a hill going um, east-west as well. So north-south and east-west, we're at the bottom of like two valleys. Oh, wow. And that just, yeah, so all of the frost just like sinks here. And in fact, it's really interesting that often in spring, our daffodils will take a whole month more to flower than ones even just like 20 metres up the road, which is at a higher elevation. So I think our soil is incredibly cold and we always get more frost and all of that kind of stuff. So having a greenhouse just is such a good thing for us because it extends our season and it means that I can get the, like seedlings started as well. I don't necessarily have to be always buying my seedlings right. from from the shops. And that way I can really focus in on like more heritage varieties and stuff like that. And yeah, and it means that like I've only just, like I've still got tomatoes, though they're pretty much hanging on mostly dead tomatoes at plants at this point in time. But yeah, massively longer season. And it allows me to grow some things that need a longer season that I wouldn't be able to do outside. Like I've grown sweet potatoes and eggplants and capsicums and chilies and things that I yeah I definitely couldn't grow most years outside. Right. So it's been the bi- biggest success. It increased the amount that we could grow so much. Nice. And I just want to do a shout out, just remind everybody that you're in the southern hemisphere, so it's winter there right now. Yes. Perfect. And what drives you? So a lot of different things, I think. I feel this really great calmness and satisfaction when I'm out in the garden and, and also mm, harvesting nice. is very you know, wonderful. So I, I just think gardening started for me as almost like a therapy when I was living in the desert and just wanted to be around green things and have access to fresher food and that kind of thing. I'm a really big foodie, so I love cooking and having access to really, really fresh ingredients and sometimes more unusual things that you can't easily get at stores. The other thing that I'm really very interested in is environmental sustainability. And I personally want to do something, whatever I can, to help with you know, like climate change and stuff like that. So I feel like in some small way, this property can make a difference with that, both in terms of reducing the, the distance that our food has to travel to us. But also I recognise that we don't actually need a full 20 acres. So by revegetating some of it, hopefully I can actually increase you know, carbon storage in the soil and and it's a very small thing obviously in the scale of the planet but I just feel like I have to do something so yeah that's definitely a driving factor for me well and often often that's all we have is this is what I can do and it's got to make me feel better and also I guess hopefully by using our property as an example because we've documented our journey on our website and also our YouTube channel so maybe other people will see it and and learn from what we've done or learn from our mistakes or whatever and then that way it's actually actually having a bigger impact than just our own property as well. Nice. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So David Holgram recently brought out a new book, which is called Retro Suburbia. And initially I was thinking, oh, this is not going to be relevant to me because I don't live in suburbia, but it actually really is very relevant. It's, I guess, the latest, you know, big book in permaculture, I think. So it really looks at your sustainability as a whole. So including retrofitting homes to make them more sustainable, which has been incredibly useful to us because our home was very poorly designed initially. It's also about, you know, gardening and things like that, using permaculture methods. But the other thing that is really important in the book is about different ways of living and interacting with the community and things like that. It's got some really good ideas for people that may, that not necessarily relevant for us, but some of them are about, you know, sharing land with people or, 
you know, that kind of thing, which could mean that people don't necessarily have to work as much and then they can actually focus on living a more sustainable lifestyle. It's a really important book, I think. And for me, it was very exciting because it really was written primarily focused on using Australia as an example and using this part of Victoria that I live in as an example. But it would be relevant to everyone. So it's a pretty good book. Beautiful. It's a big one. It's, it's a good one to have in hard... I don't think it is available as an e-book. It's only a hardcover kind of big book. Nice. Well, no, I don't think it is. Yeah, yeah big he, book. He, he's the guy that, along with Bill Mollison, got this whole thing started. Yeah. So this so. is definitely updated for the modern age, I think, and, and it's nice. pretty exciting. And what final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Probably two things. So first thing is just go slow and steady so that you can kind of learn from your mistakes rather than go in and, and just do everything, especially if it was something like Landworks like earthworks and stuff like that because that could be make a big mistake potentially if you choose the wrong thing and then you don't get to adapt to that as easily. And keeping records of progress, I've found it very helpful to have my website and my YouTube channel and actually realise how much we have done because sometimes I feel like because our property is so big and I look at this 20 acres and most of it's still got sheep on them, we share our land with a neighbour. So that's one way that we like manage this land. So they're his, his sheep. So it makes nice. me feel better when I actually realise like what we've actually done because otherwise I think I just looked at, oh, we've only really done a lot in two acres then it feels like I've barely done anything, but really we have done a lot. And I think the other thing is, yeah, definitely be part of a community. I think it's impossible to really do a lot on this kind of scale without either having a massive family with a lot of grown-up children or integrating with other people. So whether you share your land with another family, do what we do, like where we share our sheep, but I think also... I think that we will long-term look at getting like woofers to help out because still I think, you know, particularly because we both work regular jobs as well, that's a way that we can get help but also be giving back to the community by providing, you know, accommodation and food and also experience. So, yeah, yeah a lot of people around us do that as a way of managing their larger properties. Right. And woofing is it's an acronym. What's it mean? Willing workers on organic farms. Although that being said, apparently in Australia, woofing that particular website isn't as popular. Most people use another one. I think it was called uh, Swaps or something. There's, there's a few different ones, but it's basically where it tends to be younger people that might have just finished school or university are travelling around and they want to experience living in this kind of lifestyle and so you provide them free accommodation and food and then they get to help out on projects and they work for you yeah it is really cool i've actually had many woofers here at the urban farm over the past 30 years yeah so so i think our next project is going to be building a like a tiny home so that we can actually house oh, them because we yes. don't have room in our home so yep yeah Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Angela. I deeply appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And how can our listeners get a hold of you? So my website is probably a good place to start, which is, as I said before, www.loganberryforest.com.au. I also have a YouTube channel, which I try and post different sort of information stuff about things like seed saving and that, but also like following our progress, which I think it's called Loganberry Forest Permaculture Homestead. I'm also on Instagram at Loganberry Forest, which is one word. And I'm on Facebook, Loganberry Forest Permaculture and Heirloom Seeds. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Loganberry. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.